You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. I have a message I want to share with you today. It's a little bit different. It's a different message because I'm going to share three stories from the scripture. And so we're going we're gonna to go a little bit in, in, in some weird things that happen in Scripture. Uh, some of them are inappropriate. So that's why we took the kids below 12 years old out of the room. And <laughs> but there's a point to it. So if you just ride with me, I've titled this message, Ripple Effect. Ripple Effect. And the first story I want to share with you is about a man. There's a man in the Scripture who, by whom... His daughter-in-law conceived a child, but he didn't know. He did not know that his daughter-in-law had conceived a child by him. And what happened is his wife had died, and his two older sons, his two eldest sons, have died, also died. And he was left with a young boy, and he went out after many years to shear his sheep, which is a big deal for herdsmen. He was a herdsman. He had cattle. It's a big deal for the herdsmen to go out into the city to shear his sheep because that's a big payday. What they would do, they would take all his sheep, their sheep, and they would shear the wool off of the sheep. And depending on the amount of wool, they would sell that and make a lot of money. So this guy was happy, and he wanted to celebrate. So he sought a prostitute to celebrate and to spend the night with. Um, and it so happened that it wasn't a prostitute. This story is so interesting that every time I read it, I go like, I, I'm more convinced that the only reason why this story is in Scripture is because she wasn't a prostitute. You know those stories that are awkward? Because you're like, it's almost as if this was a regular thing that he would do every time. But this time, I have to write it down. Because this time, it wasn't who he thought it was. The story is about Judah and Tamar. Yes, Judah, one of the Israel's uh, 12 sons, one of the chief uh, of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the, the head of the tribe of Judah. That's the man. And his daughter-in-law, her name was Tamar. And Tamar, this is what happened. Tamar was waiting on Judas's promise. She was waiting on what Judah had promised him, which was his little uh, son. That was the tradition back then for her to keep her honor, to keep her name, and to keep her inheritance. Without the son, she could not have the inheritance of her late husband, Ur. And so the son, when he became of age, Judah gave him to some other woman. And Tamar took it upon her own hands to right the wrongs. And she decided to um, pretend to be a prostitute and fool Judah into that. But the story, it's, it's found in Genesis 38. The story is told and it ends with Tamar giving birth to twins. And you don't hear anything else about it. You don't hear anything else about Tamar other than the fact that she gave birth to twin boys and one of their, the, the boys was named Perez. 
There's another story in Scripture to make you a little bit more uncomfortable this morning, because we're starting with (laughs) good juicy stories, of another man who fathered children he did not know. And nowadays, I mean, you're living here in the 21st century, there's not, uh, uh, you're not shocked to hear that a man fathered children that he did not know. We, we have romanticized it. We have made movies and written novels about it. The child who does not know who the father is and then goes on an expedition to find the father. And it was a bad story. And the father tried and then they were reunited. This was not the case because this man fathered children he did not know he fathered with his two daughters. Yeah. You might know Lot by the fact, if, because there's a lot of stories in Scripture that are shared about Lot and Abraham. But Lot is the man. Lot is that man. And Lot and Abraham, he was Abraham's nephew. They were rich. They had a lot of possessions. And there came a point in Scripture, if you know the story, you know that because they had too much, their two camps could not coexist. Their managers were fighting, their herdsmen were fighting, their servants were fighting. And so Abraham called Lot and he said, Lot, listen, this is what we need to do. There's no reason for us to endure this. There's no reason for us to keep our, our two camps in strife. Let's, let's make an agreement of peace. You pick whatever part, whatever part of the land to go to and go there with your people and I'll go the opposite way. So I'm giving you dibs and decide where you want to go. And I'll go the opposite way. So Lot picked the best, the best, the best area that he could. It was a beautiful valley, fruitful, green, full, of, full with luster. And he moved his camp there. And his camp was so large that it stretched. Scripture said that it stretched all the way into a city called Sodom. It was a powerful city. And Abraham goes the other way to a place not so fruitful. Not so beautiful. But then Lot and his daughters and his wife move into Sodom. And there in Sodom, his daughters find men who vow to marry them. They become his daughter's fiancés. And in that process, before the daughters get married, two men called messengers, angels of the Lord, are assigned from God to come destroy the city of Sodom because Scripture says that it was a wicked city. They were violent men. They were not nice people. And it says that there was an outcry against that city that reached God. And God called judgment on that city. And these two men came to Lot and said, listen, you have to leave town. Because our assignment is to destroy this town, but we cannot do anything with you here. We have been assigned to remove you from town, and we're going to rain down fire on this town. And Lot gets moving. He tells his sons-in-law. His sons-in-law thought he was joking, didn't believe him, didn't come along with him. So Lot escapes with his two daughters and his wife, and in the process of escaping, he loses his wife as well. He becomes a widow. His daughters lose their opportunity to have a husband, and Lot moves to a little town further away from Sodom, but he can still see Sodom from far away. And he sees what happens to Sodom, and he gets so terrified to see the destruction that became to Sodom that he thought, the same thing is going to happen to my town. i got to get out of here. He became a caveman. That's how fearful he was. 
And he took his daughters into a cave, and he lived in a cave. And here's where his daughters have the brilliant idea. They say, listen, our dad is old. And in, if we continue life like this, we're not going to get children. In other words, we're going to lose our inheritance. We're going to lose our future, and our family lineage is going to stop right here. So let's get our dad some drink. Let's get him so drunk that he won't be able to realize what he's doing, and let's have children with him. And that's what they did. And the story also ends right there. Genesis 19, you can read it. It ends there with his two daughters, having each of them having a son. And the eldest daughter named her son Moab. And that's the last you hear of Moab. The only references that you hear from these two stories is that Perez and his children move into Egypt with Jacob. He, they're part of the 70 people that moved into Egypt because of the famine. And that Moab became the father of the Moabites. Different town, different country, separate people from Israel. And the Moabites were a people. So you don't hear anything specific about Moab or his descendants. Not until, this is the third story, not until Ruth comes along. Because Ruth changes everything. Ruth changes everything. She comes into the picture. She comes into the story. And she has a name. And it's almost as if the writer makes sure that we know that she's not from Israel. Because she's named Ruth the Moabite. She's a descendant of Moab. But we know her specific name. And this whole book is written right before 1 Samuel is written to tell the story of Ruth. Now, these three stories, they seem like independent stories. They seem like stories that are disconnected. It's almost like one of those stories in Scripture, those stories in Scripture that you read and you scratch your head and you go like, why is this here? I don't know if you geek out on the Bible sometimes, but I do that. I, like, I, I was telling Alina, I'm so excited to read the geneal genealogies because if it wasn't for the genealogies this week, you know, this connection wouldn't have happened between Ruth and the sons of Lot and uh, Perez. But here we find two family lineages that began in a very embarrassing, not honorable beginning, start. Now, if you think that you have a complicated family story, a family history, if you think that you have a complicated way of explaining where you've come from, think about Perez. Right? I just imagine Paris in a regular conversation coming into the city square and going like, Hey, Paris, good to see you again. So, never heard about your story, man. What's your story? Tell me. He could look at you and say, Well, let me tell you this. My late mom's husband would have been my stepbrother. So you just deal with that. <laughs> you figure that out. <laughs> Imagine uh, Moab trying to explain his family roots, which was everything back then. Same thing. Moab could turn it into a riddle, actually. Moab could say, my grandfather is also my father. And my mom's sister's son is also my brother. Who am I? <laughs> 
That's the complicated family beginning. And you don't hear anything specific about any single individual from those two lineages until we get to Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is interesting because the story of Ruth starts with a couple, Elimelech and Naomi, moving into Moab. So they moved into Ruth's town with two kids, Malon and Kilion. And when they move, shortly after, Elimelech died, so Naomi became a widow. But she still had her two sons. So her two sons took on wives. And scripture says that the whole period that they were in Moab was 10 years. So we don't know how long before uh, Malon took Ruth as a wife and Kilion took Orpah as a wife. But those are the two Moabite wives that they married. But then Malon and Kilion died. And that's the introduction of the book. Naomi is left with Ruth and Orpah. They are vowed to her. That was a tradition back then. But she has nothing to offer them. She cannot offer them possessions because they need to be redeemed. And she doesn't have a younger man to redeem that, those possessions. It was very patriarchal, the society, based on, on the man's ability to own property. So she would have to go to a near relative to try to make it happen. And so Ruth was found in a position where she lost all her dreams and her future and everything that she was looking forward to. And here, Naomi sees that it was just not fair to these two girls. I mean, I moved here with my husband and two kids into their country, and they are, are married, my sons, and then they die, and what am I going to do? So they re she releases, Naomi releases Orpah and Ruth from that vow and says, you are free. You are free to go. Go do what you need to do, and, you know, because I have nothing to offer you. And they said, no, we're going to stick around with you. And she said, no, 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 what are you going to do? I don't have a husband. I don't have anybody even interested in me. And if I did, let's say I have a son right now, today, are you going to wait until he's of age? For you to marry him? No, go have husbands. Go, go further your family line. Go, I'm, I'm releasing you. I'm giving you a fresh start. You can start from scratch. I'm giving you a new beginning. And I will pray that the Lord may bless you. She was blessing them through it. And scripture says that Orpah kissed Naomi and left. But Ruth clung to her. And that single decision. The single decision Ruth made changed everything in her family lineage and her history. Now there's more to the story, but I want to stop right here for a minute. Because what Ruth did, she stood on a principle and she stood on values that can be transferred to you and I here today some 3,000 years later. Right, babe? That's right. <laughs> Ruth, Ruth vowed to her mother-in-law to be with her. She vowed to her mother-in-law to stay with her. And this is what she said in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, 
I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, there's a lot to learn from Ruth's story. But I want to park right here because this, this, this is powerful. Here's a woman who lost every opportunity she was looking forward to. And I, know if you've been, I don't know if you've been there. If you were in a position in your life where you had things going for you, where things were on a good track, and then one thing after the other is almost like the rug gets pulled from under you, and you fall flat on your back, and you go like, really? But she gets an opportunity to start over again, and she doesn't take it. She just doesn't take it. She decides, Naomi, I'm sticking with you. Here's what Ruth did that's, for you and I, a big lesson. Ruth valued people over things. She valued the who over the what. She looked at Naomi and she said, even though you can't offer me anything, I still love you. And I'm sticking with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Now think about that for our lives. That's a tremendous, tremendous life lesson. Because when Naomi had nothing to offer her, she still clung to her, clung to her. Now, how many of our relationships are benefit-based? How many of our engagements are based on what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? How can I be benefited? How many of our transactions are based on that? And I get it. Some transactions are supposed to be like that. And here you find someone who says, no, I know, I know you have nothing to offer me. But that is less important than who you are and than who you have been to me. Now think about that for a minute. If we can apply that to our relationships, if we can apply that to our marriages, if we can apply that to our relationships with our kids, if we can apply that to our friendships, what a difference would it make? Hmm? Because we live in a culture that is a me-first culture. We do. We live in a culture that trains us to think, what am I going to get out of it? And if I don't get enough out of it, I'm going to complain. I'm going to go to the customer service. I'm going to call the hotline. And I'm going to make sure that they're going to give me my product and they're going to give me my thing the way they're supposed to do it. And that can bleed into our relationships. That can bleed into how we see people. That can bleed into how we see our loved ones. And even that can bleed into how we see God. We can come to a place like this and leave. Go like, what was in it for me? What do you have for me, God? And it's not that God doesn't want to bless you. Of course he does. It's not that he doesn't want to be good to you. Of course he does. But if our intention is me first, are we really honoring God? If our intention is me first, are we really loving our spouse? If our intention is me first, are we really upholding our brother and our sister? So this is the tremendous lesson that we see in Ruth's life. And this is the amazing thing that she chose to do in a culture that was me-centered. Here's, here's what we need to understand. Every culture without the influence of God is a me-centered culture. This is a human condition. 
This is not an American thing. This is not a, a westernized culture thing. This is not a 21st century thing. Ruth was part of this too, and we will see this because, as we know, Ruth is a Moabite. And when Boaz comes into the story, this is what happens. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Ruth, when she does that, when she sticks with her uh, mother-in-law, they move back to her mother-in-law's uh, land. They, uh, Naomi hears that, that the Lord had, has blessed Judah again. They came from Judah. And the Lord had blessed Judah again with food. So they went back uh, to their hometown, Naomi's hometown. And Ruth followed her. And someone heard of what Ruth did. And this man's name was Boaz. Boaz heard about it. And he valued it so much that when he noticed a new girl gleaning from his fields, he owned a field, and gleaning from his fields, uh, he paid attention to her. And he asked, who is she? And they said, that's Ruth. So this is what Ruth was doing. She got back to a foreign land that she never lived in. She just came because she loved her mother-in-law. And she decided to go out into the fields and glean. And glean from the fields means this. She would go behind the reapers, and whatever was left over, whatever they didn't want, she would, she would get it for herself. And when Boaz saw that, and he realized that it was Ruth, he said, Listen, do not go to any other field, but stay in this field. Have I not told my man not to touch you and not to do anything wrong to you? And I've also told the women to leave some grains on purpose for you to get. And she was, she was, she was uh, uh, tremendously grateful. And this is what uh, the conversation continues between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? This is Ruth talking to Boaz. That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And you, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz goes to the heart of the matter because here he confirms that every culture is a me-first culture. He's telling Ruth, what you have done is unheard of. What you have done is so honorable. It's so beautiful that I have to respond I have to do this. I have to reward you. Because here's what I realize. And this is where he comes to the heart of the matter. He says, you have taken refuge under the Lord's wing. And this is something we can't miss. Because when Ruth vows to Naomi, she vows before the Lord. Now as Christians reading from an English translation, we just gloss over that. But like I said, Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites didn't pray to the God of Israel. Moabites had their own national God. Kamosh was their God. And they were, he was the God of the Moabites. She wasn't raised or brought up believing in the Lord 
Jehovah. That's the original word for the Lord there, Jehovah, which is the God of Israel. She didn't grow up believing in Jehovah and the Lord. She grew up raised under a national uh, uh, belief system that drove her toward Kamosh. But because she married into a God-fearing family, she vowed to the Lord. And we can, we can speculate here. We can draw a conclusion that Ruth was driven to put people first because she put God first. And that's where Boaz recognized. He said, listen, you have chosen to take your refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And I'm praying that he may pay you back. Because everything you've gone through, through everything you've gone through, he is still covering you under your wings. And if you have been there, if you have taken a chance or taken a step toward this God that we share about every single Sunday. Maybe you started coming to this church and you were not really a God person or a Christian person. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not, you don't really go to church. But you believe in God. And you believe that there is something out there. Let me encourage you with this. When you believe in God... Jehovah, the God of Israel, he will cover you through every single situation you go through. And that's what happened to Ruth. And that's why the book is, has been written. Ruth's story, Ruth's decision puts her lineage back on the map. And not only does that, it redeems and restores her lineage. Boaz and Emmer's Ruth, he redeems her. They become a couple. Now, here's what's interesting. Boaz is Paris's great, 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 great grandson. Boaz comes from Judah and Tamar's lineage. And Ruth comes from Moab's lineage. And now these two people who came from a messy, messy story bring their family story back to the center by doing what? Putting God first. And putting people first. This is a very basic principle that you and I can apply every single day. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know your story. I don't know what you have in your past that you want to keep tucked away in your past. Maybe it's decisions you made. Maybe it's decisions your, your parents made. Maybe it's just a curse in your family. That you're walking away from, you're trying to run away from, but it seems to be always getting you and catching up to you. And you just want to bury it. You just want it to be in the past. Let me tell you this. This principle can work for you too. If you find refuge under God's wings and you begin to love people in a way that you put them first, you will see the reward in your life. You will see God's blessing Come to your life and change your situation. Even when you have lost everything. Even when you have gone through a season of nothing. Clinging to people that can't give you anything back. Clinging to situations that have no promising circumstances or no promising outcome. The forecast is gloomy. But if you put your life under the refuge of Almighty God. And if you continue to consistently value people and love people, you can see your family 
and your story change for the better too. That's what happened to Ruth. Here's what's interesting about Ruth's story. Ruth and Boaz had a son. His name was Obed. Obed had a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse had a son. His name was David, the greatest king Israel has ever seen. And eventually, from David, Jesus Christ was born. Ruth redeems her family lineage. Boaz and Ruth become a direct connection to Jesus Christ, whom I, we worship here in 2017. How amazing is that? Now, if you, you got to understand this, that the decisions you make today can cause a ripple effect that will go for generations to come. Ruth was in the ground. She had no idea what God was going to do with her decision. But here we are today, redeemed, renewed, strengthened by the blood of Jesus because somebody decided to come under God's refuge and come under his wings. I have a friend, a friend that some of you have met. His name is Nick Nielsen. He's a pastor at, at Lakewood Church, and uh, he was uh, our boss for many years, Alini and I, as we worked under his department. He's been here a little over a year ago. He just shared a message here. Um, but Nick, Nick comes from a messy background. Nick was born in a, in a home that, that was not ideal, not a, an ideal situation. And when he was brought up from a young age, he lived with his dad. His dad and mom uh, had split up, and his dad and his two brothers, they all lived together in this house in an in, in outskirts of Chicago, Illinois, and in Rockford, Illinois. And Nick was brought up this good old American man, you know, but not in the face, not believing in God. He was just, his dad was just trying to do his best. But his dad battled with alcohol. His mom was trying to find the love of her life, trying to make her, her life count. And, but she was getting it wrong every single time. By the time Nick was a teenager, her, her mom, uh, his mom had remarried four times. So here's his kid in high school. With not a lot of promise. But then he comes into a room just like this. And he is rocked by Jesus. The presence of God just impacts him so much that he gives his life to God right then and there. He was 17 years old. He was still in high, in high school. And as a senior in high school, he begins to put his hope in the Lord. He comes under God's wings. And it was almost like Ruth. Believing for a bright future. See, in high school, Nick played running back for the team's uh, football. He, he played football in high school, and he was a running back. He was fast. He was getting the attention of local newspapers, and he, he was being told that he could get a scholarship in, in, in for college and, and go all the way because he had the talent. He had the speed, and so he began working toward that, and he put his hopes in it. He was praying for it. He was believing for it, but then... He got hurt. He tore his ACL, and he was off. He was out of season, and, and the coach told him, I'm sorry, I don't think you, you can play again this season. And so his chances for, to going uh, to uh, getting a scholarship and, and, and playing in college football were out the window. And now Nick, this new Christian, uh, 18 years old, is found with 
the prospects that he was hoping for out the window. No prospects. Nothing but God and his life. So instead of going to college, he went to Bible school. He felt a call for ministry. And he decided to follow God. And at every single step of the way, this boy, this young man, decided to honor God and put God first. And to love people regardless of what they can offer. He became a youth pastor. That position in, in the training that he received put him in connection with a little church down in Houston called Lakewood Church. And uh, he became uh, the, uh, an interim youth pastor at Lakewood. He developed some relationships there. Went back to Rockford, got married, and then was called. After, being, after having uh, gotten married, was called uh, down to Lakewood to pastor and start a brand new ministry, uh, a young adult ministry at Lakewood. Now here's a guy who has a decision to make. Should I follow God and take my refuge under his wings? Should I leave everything behind? My family, my friends, all the, the, the support that I have, and go into this new position that I don't know if it's going to work. What should I do? Go and love a people that's really not my people. He never lived in Texas before, never lived in Houston before. But he's called to come and love these young adults and start a ministry from scratch. Because Lakewood Church, even though it was the fastest growing church in America, and it was probably the largest church back then uh, already, did not have a viable young adult ministry, really. So he was, he was called to start this brand new thing out of nothing. And he, and he answered the call and he said, yes, I'm going. I'm going to do it. And because he did, I remember when he started, because we were already part of Lakewood. This was 10 years ago, 2007. Nick comes in right around the summer. And Alini and I get really excited because Alini was already on staff. I was helping the worship team uh, with the youth. And we're like, this is, this is good. You know, 10 years ago, that was actually our age group. <laughs> we were 24 years old, and we were like, yes, this is, this is awesome. Let's, let's, let's join hands. So I remember being in the very first meeting of the college and adult ministry, and there's Nick with another other seven people in the room, and we were dreaming and thinking about what God could do. And that got me thinking this week as I was writing this message and praying and meditating, because if it wasn't for Nick taking that step of faith, Alini and I wouldn't have gotten involved with the young adult team there. If it wasn't for that involvement, we probably wouldn't have gotten called on staff at Lakewood because we worked under his team. And we, all the time that we spent in that beautiful, awesome ministry that prepared us, God had a plan. And what was God's plan? Connect Community in Stanford, Connecticut. And so I wrote Nick a note this week and got teary and it was supposed to be one index card. It ended up being like five cards. Because I was just, this just started hap, uh, coming to me. And I'm like, man, if it wasn't for you taking that step of faith and leaving your family to go to Houston, start something at a church, like leaving everything. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what that takes. Nobody knows what, what God is doing when he calls you out of your own into something that you don't know. You just don't know what God is calling you into. But you have to take that step of faith and, and obey. And that's what happened to Ruth. Ruth was going back into a land that she didn't know what was going to happen. She just listened for Naomi and said, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go with you. If it wasn't for Ruth taking that step of faith, 
walking into the unknown and actually leaving her land, we wouldn't be talking about her today. There wouldn't be a book in scriptures called Ruth. And in the same way, if it wasn't for Nick leaving Rockford, Illinois, stepping into the unknown, starting a young adult ministry at Lakewood Church, who now blew up, they're doing amazing things. We probably wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't be sitting here today. My encouragement to you is this. You don't know where God wants to take you, but do take refuge under his wings. Because you may be in a situation right now where it looks like you have nothing. But if he's calling you into something, take that prompting. If he's leading you somewhere, do what God is telling you to do. Because I've seen it again and again and again. People come to us and they say, how could you have left Houston and Lakewood to come to a place where you don't know anybody? No promises. How could you do it? What are you thinking? Everybody's trying to leave Connecticut. Why are you coming in? Like to try to get you guys to stay. <laughs> Why? Because I have seen it again and again and again and again that when people take refuge under God's wings and they decide to love others, no matter what they can offer, God shows up and he guides you, and he leads you, and he rewards you. Weep may, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come. So if you're in a position right now, and I ask you to stand. If you're in a place right now in your life where the only thing you have is God, because the promises that you were believing for, they're out the window. The things that you were hoping for, they're gone. Let me encourage you today. Stay strong. Make the Lord your refuge. And wherever he tells you to go, go. And whatever he tells you to leave, leave. For you, it may not be leaving Stanford or Fairfield County or Westchester County. For you, it may not be an actual physical move. It may be leaving certain relationships. It may be leaving certain things that are not contributing to your life. It may be that he wants you to go towards something, not just get away from something, but step into the promise that he has for you. Step into that business. Step into that idea. Step into what he has called you to do. Even though it may look like there's nothing, God can bring something out of nothing for your benefit. Do you receive it this morning? Amen. Amen.